This has been such a fun journey for me to see what's happening in the class and to hear the feedback from everyone, listen to the questions and comments. I'm thrilled that people are beginning to understand maybe some new or different principles than they would understood before. Let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you again that we can have the privilege, and I, I really believe it is a privilege in this day and age of our culture collapsing around us that we can still come um, to gather together in your name in a, in a public place. Thank you for that privilege. Lord, I pray that you would enlighten us through your Holy Spirit and that your will would be done tonight, that you would receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Just like to let you guys be, um, be aware of a, one of my favorite magazines that I, that I receive. Maybe some of you already get it and some of you don't. This is Answers in Genesis magazine. It's just, the magazine is called Answers. It has nothing to do with uh, election necessarily, but it has to do with creation from a biblical concept or science from a creation standpoint of view. So if you're interested, you're welcome to look at this. I have other copies at home if you want to borrow them maybe even sign up for the magazine and support. Answers in Genesis, I think, is a great, great organization that's doing a, a great service to the world. Uh, they're building a brand-new full-scale ark, if you don't know, in Kansas. Kansas? Yeah. Kentucky. Kentucky, thank you. Yes, Kentucky. And uh, in the, the um, outlook or the projection for the people that did the surveys project that over a million people will be coming to this ark a year. So I think it's a great way to share the gospel if you understand that from a creation standpoint. Moving on, last time we met, we talked about does God have a free will? Bottom line, just because God always exercises his will according to his nature does not mean that he does not have free will. <laughs> Humans, on the other hand, have a will that is in bondage to sin and one that is limited by the omnipotent hand of God. Well, tonight we're going to continue learning more about our wills and what the scriptures have to say about it, what the concepts are. It's going to read through some of these uh, slides, and you're welcome to follow along. Part two, for the will to be free, it must act from a position of neutrality with no bias. People who believe in the free will concept in churches today really hang on to the free will as their standard, their foundation of, of how God operates. We are free to use our will to choose God or not choose God. And so that's why I'm going a little bit more in depth about this subject Problems. If the will is neutral, then we make choices for no reason. Think about that. If, there's, if it's really, really neutral, then there's no reason to make a choice because it's neutral. There's no circumstances, good or bad. They're spontaneous, no moral significance. They cannot be judged good or bad. But God is concerned with our motives. <clears throat> How can a choice be made if there's no bias, prior inclination, bent, or motivation? Joseph, in Genesis 50:20, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. What is true of our wills? The mind chooses what it desires. Therefore, man's will is the ability to make choices according to his desires. Self-determinism, we are free to choose what we want. Okay, pretty self-explanatory. External determinism, we are forced to do things by external forces. So all these things influence our wills. Man is a slave to sin and will make choices based on his sin nature and its desires. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
man's responsibility regarding wills. <clears throat> Although fallen, man is yet a responsible free agent. We discussed this definition a while back. He still has reason, conscience, and can recognize moral distinctions and choose or reject as he may so decide. He is not able to understand, seek, or do spiritual things which lead to salvation. We've gone through a lot of scriptures that verify that concept or that fact. In a courtroom, a man will be asked if he committed the crime. He may answer yes and then say, but you don't understand, I didn't have a choice. You can, you can imagine, right? Or maybe, maybe you felt that way yourself. But you did. A choice was made. Whether you made the choice or not, you made a choice. To, how is it? To, to not to decide is to decide. All choices are made dependent on external and internal influences. That never excuses us from being responsible. External and internal influences are always present when a choice is made. In fact, it is the only way a choice can be made. If you say the only way I can be responsible is to not be influenced by anything, that will, that will never happen. Our independence and bent on free will comes from the garden. It was there that the seed for a desire to be totally free took root. Problems with free will. You can imagine your friends, people in churches across America today, holding on to this free will concept. I have very near loved ones that, that hold to this concept. God is unloving. Free will makes God an observer. In a world with no ultimate purpose and where people are victims of their circumstances. If the person really does have a free will to choose whatever they want to, then God's only observing what that person is choosing. Okay, for God to watch all of the pain, suffering, murder, rape, beatings, disease, starvation, wars, and have the power to stop it, but doesn't, portrays a grossly unloving God. Those who believe in free will, though they may be saddened by it, accept it because free will is being served. So there's a contradiction, I think, in people's minds. And if you were to really push the issue with them, they would have to come up against a wall if you were to make observations like this. And that's the tough part where it brings contention with those that believe in the free will concept. God values free will more than people's lives. What? Really? This is a problem with free will, but that's what people might think. When you, when you actually uh, th think, it, think it through. In reality, those who believe in free will are saying that God would rather give us free will, even though it costs the eternal lives and destinies of billions of people, than to not do so. You don't hear these kind of discussions when you're talking with someone about free will because it's their, their foundation. It's the thing they hold on to. It's more of a faith thing for them than it is really a foundational, standard, solid ground. God looks down on the billions of people burning in hell and comforts himself with the thought, all of this was worth it so that man could have free will little sarcasm there, but the point being that this is the way that someone with free will might think about it. You cannot pray for the unsaved. Really? Think about that. If someone really has a free will and you believe they did, then could you pray for me to be saved if I really had only a free will to exercise in order to get to know God, that would be interfering with my free will. So then, can you really pray for the unsaved? No. Not according to this. 
not according to the free will mantra. It would, be, it would therefore not only be wrong to pray for the unsaved, but futile as well. For that would mean we are asking God to intervene and violate a person's free will. And any influence whatsoever would be wrong in the, in the free will concept. Most people haven't thought of this side of the free will thing before. So that's why we're running through this stuff so you can think it through for yourselves. Heaven will limit freedom, other problems with free will, and therefore be a miserable place. Again, a sarcastic way of saying it, there will be no choice to sin in heaven. How sad. What will we do, turn into robots? Totally a sarcastic way of, of looking at it, but the point comes across. If free will only is exercised, then, then what will heaven be like? Other problems with free will. God is not fair. You hear that a lot with uh, excuses for election, that certainly God could elect, you know, not elect some and, not, and elect others. God's not fair. Why would he do that? The cry of free will is that belief in election makes God unfair. However, it is inconsistent for those who believe in free will to say it is fair when God puts people in terrible situations here on earth, but he can't do it in eternity. So if God chooses to have someone not go to heaven, that's his choice, or to struggle here on earth, that's his choice, that's okay, but he can't send people to hell. You know, it's inconsistent. John 9, 1 through 3, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this, this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it's God doing the, the work, the show, showing other problems. God's omniscience and foreknowledge. Most free wills hold to God's omniscience and foreknowledge. God knew that you were going to accept him as, as your Savior, so he just then chose you. Well, what they overlook, however, is that what that means is that the future is locked and there is no free will. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? I remember thinking about justifying election or salvation with foreknowledge at a very as a teenager. Oh, that's it. That's the answer. I got it. Figured it out. And then, then I learned later on that doesn't work for these kind of issues. If the will is truly free, then man is not responsible for his decisions. Ooh, his decisions will be random. If random, then no inclination. No inclination, no deliberation. You end up with the same criticism as those who believe in election. How can man be responsible? So the circle goes right back to uh, putting it into man's, man's court. Man is responsible because his decisions are based on his inclinations, which are tied to his nature, old sin nature or new divine nature, whichever, whichever God has given, whichever you are. Next one is powerful to me. One person responds to the gospel and his neighbor does not. I remember sharing with neighbors you know, across the yard. That is a question that needs to be answered. Why did you respond and your neighbor, friend, relatives does not? If the answer is found in you, then you have produced self-righteousness. Well, I gave the right words. 
I had the right attitude that day, or, you know, look at me, I led this person to Christ. No, you didn't. God chose that person from before the beginning of time, and he used you as a tool, probably among many other people along the way, to lead that person ultimately to Christ. Free will can subtly promote a self-righteous view of salvation. It is not grace plus free will equals salvation. It's in Christ alone that we are saved, by faith alone. You see the point that where people think about free will, it's a stumbling block that they don't even realize all the stumbling blocks that are there thought it was important to go over this so that you might have another perspective, another um, dimension of where someone thinking and believing in free will might be coming from. If you want to challenge someone sometime and they said, oh no, we, we live in a, you know, God's given us all a free will, just ask them politely if they then can... Um, Pray for someone who is not saved if they really have a free will. A free will. Let them think about that. As we found tonight, no, you really can't according to that definition. But they would not probably want to admit that. So that's the stumbling blocks of the portion of the free will which the Armenians or a lot of people hold to. That's the other side of election. And that's where this is coming from. The eternal destiny of man depends on the faithfulness and persuasion of another believer. This is a really big one to me. Problems with free will. It is a frightening thought <clears throat> that my salvation is dependent on the knowledge and spirituality of another person. I used to, I, I shared this before, but in the Sierra again, I used to struggle internally about how can I better communicate the gospel to a person so that they might come to know Christ. I just have such a burning desire inside to uh, to share the gospel and see people come to come to Christ. Quite often, in a, in a public place, I, w- I would imagine people either they're saved or they're unsaved. In in my mind, in my mind it's, sometimes I, I think about that. And yet when I started to realize that this is not up to me to bring them to Christ, it's like a, a whole new burden was lifted. The, the sky was open. The lights were on. And it's like, wow, I can just share my faith according to the, the uh, witness that God has given me and let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do. Norm, you had a question, comment. Yeah, I had that uh, exact experience. I have, uh, <clears throat> he's uh, died now, but he was a, really a, a, a good Christian man, and he loved to share the gospel with people. <clears throat> but he was very Arminian in his views. But he, he lamented to me and told me about this person he'd been sharing the gospel with, and he, this person wouldn't respond. And it troubled him so much, and he said, I, I keep... I've written him letters, I've, I've tried to explain it every way I can, but there's something wrong in what I'm doing that he doesn't respond. He took the I, responsibility oh, on himself. That, I, I totally that he get that. was at that. fault. Yep. I, I totally get that. When I was a brand new Christian in 71, we went to this little Pentecostal church. There was a lady there who would go to church but would do nothing else she wouldn't volunteer. She wouldn't take care of any ministry. She wouldn't do anything. And she told God that she will do nothing for him until he saves her husband. Wow. But she'll just go to church. Well, her husband was sitting near unsaved, so she wouldn't serve God. Wow. That's a pretty heavy statement to Well, it, to it, make. she was a troubled soul. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And yeah. I mean, I, I don't think either Calvinist or Arminian would endorse that idea. But we need to realize that we, we can share the gospel, and that's what God's going to use. 
But if sometimes people don't respond, we don't, there's no plan B that we can somehow pull out of the, our hat. I used to think that. I used to think there's got to be a better way to communicate with this person. But what I understood about election is like, wow, this is so um, amazing that God just does it. Um, I don't know if any of you have um, thought of this. Um, Mere Christianity, I think, is the book that got me started thinking this way um, early on that the argument was that without free will, could love really exist? Could we really love God? It, you know, could God um, receive love from us unless we freely chose him sort of thing? And I, I know it's upside down. It's the other way around. Um, but I just, I just kind of wonder if there's a way to respond to that argument, um, if anybody has any thoughts, because I still hear that from people. Well, the Bible already responds to it. In First John, we love him because he first loved us. Amen. Amen. You know, in the flesh we can do nothing pleasing to God because we're in bondage. And that's the problem with free will is if it's in bondage to always act towards its inclination or disposition and the disposition is in bondage to love sin, then you always hate the things of God. And therefore, as Romans 8, 8 says, you can do nothing pleasing to him. And so there in mere Christianity, he's actually cutting out the legs of the possibility of anyone ever loving God because none can left to their own devices. So, yeah. Now, not to mention that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the entire law. And the Bible's very clear that we're not going to fulfill the entire law in the flesh. Oh, you guys, just drink it in. Drink in this, this word of God. It's like, oh, this is so precious. It does your heart good, your soul. Take in the word. In the middle here of this slide, if they are not faithful in their witness, not knowledgeable in the word, not persuasive enough, I could spend an eternity in hell for their failure. If I'm in a remote area, another concept, right? Isolated from much of civilization, and no one makes the effort to bring the gospel to me, all of the natural revelation in the universe, stars, solar system, trees, air, water, will do me no good, and I'll be lost for eternity. Oh, wow. There's got to be more to this salvation thing than that. And there is. God's chosen. We read over and over and over and over again how God has chosen us. Oh, it makes me feel so special, so chosen by God. Not worthy, but chosen. Not too long ago, I did this session with another group of guys, and one of the fellows asked about, uh, he, was, he, was along, he believed in the concept of Ar Armenianism and, and free will. And so he was looking to get out of God doing all the choosing. And certainly he said, there's got to be random, randomness in our universe. And I thought, oh my goodness, I, I don't believe that. But I went and asked Eric, and he gave me some insight on it. I put it up on the screen. First, we must realize that randomness does not mean that we can have uncaused effects. This guy's profound. I like this. This means that there must be causes behind every effect in the universe. Denying this would be a denial of the law of causality, which stems from the law of non-contradiction. Now, to put on your thinking caps a little bit, to put it simply, nothing cannot do something. Second, we must realize that God is not inactive or passive in sustaining his universe. Amen. Another loud amen. <laughs> he is not passive. Paul writes in Colossians 1, 6, 1, 16, 17, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and, I love this, in him all things hold together. Done uh, amateur reading, amateur scientists reading about physics of the universe and uh, scientists still cannot determine what holds that atom from exploding by itself. But we know from this verse that God holds all things together. Does that sound like randomness to you? It doesn't to me. God is very, very detailed. Again, we we talked earlier about um, God's sovereignty and his his sovereignty that there's not a molecule in the world that is not in ordained by God. I really believe that. So when I first learned that passage in, in this reference, we're having an outdoor session at a camp up in the Boundary Waters, and there happened to be a lot of things floating in the air, dust particles, pollen, um, little little feathery kind of things that the naked eye could see. And I'm, I'm reading that verse, thinking about that concept and looking up and thinking, all those molecules that I'm seeing coming down out of the sky are designed to fall exactly where God wants them to fall. I mean, can you take it that far? Can you be that detailed about it? I believe you can. I really do. Otherwise, God would not be sovereign. And just to reiterate, if, if things were not in order, then he wouldn't be sovereign. This passage teaches that God is active in sustaining the creation just as he was in creating it. I'm going to go lightly through Romans 9 again. This is a little bit deeper, certainly not exegetical by any means, but with a concept of looking at this scripture as we have in the past, only um, a little bit more about election and his choosing. So we could spend weeks on chapter 9 probably, but we're going to just spend a few minutes here in, in comparison. This chapter is not about the election of nations to historical roles. This chapter is about individuals. Let me repeat that. This is not about nations. This is about individuals. Okay? The condition of Israel, verses 1 through 5, Romans 1, 9, 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. This is, we believe, Paul speaking out, crying for the sake of his brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's desire for Israel. Paul is stricken with grief by Israel's spiritual condition and rejection of the Messiah. Nine four who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Wow, that's a lot. Who are Israelites belong to, belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the promises, Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all? There's, there's a ton of things in there. Israel's privileged position, Israel had it all. It certainly would appear that with it all, their salvation was guaranteed. So the big question is, why isn't all of Israel saved? But I thought all of Israel is going to be saved. That's what Revelation says. But that's a different time. This is talking about the nation of Israel then and now. The answer, individual election. 
It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. God has not failed. The word of God in its invitation for all to come for salvation does not fail when all do not. It may look as though God and his word have failed, but they really haven't. It never was God's promise to save every individual who is physically descended from the nation of Israel. <clears throat> it never was God's promise to save every individual who is physically descended from the nation of Israel. There is another explanation for Israel's rejection. Romans 9, 7. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Pretty clear. 9, 7. They're not all children, in other words, saved, because they're Abraham's descendants. It just, Paul says it doesn't work that way. That is, Romans 9, 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. 9, 10, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the Twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choices might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Election salvation does not come from one inheritance or the future works. Election is not based on what God sees is going to happen in the future, it is based on his calling. I'm going to go a little bit further into the foreknowledge view because at this juncture, that's, again, what a lot of people think about. And I used to think about that before I was more instructed. Certainly, God just knew we were going to be chosen, so he elected us. This is a, a simple view of the uh, foreknowledge view. There it is. God looks down through the corridors of time and sees that I am going to become a believer, and so he elects me. You see the throne up here in, in heaven. I'm going to just walk over here. It's easier than moving that thing. God, God's sitting on the throne, eyes that in some space and time, we choose him, and so he says, okay, I'm going to elect you from eternity past to eternity future in the timeline. But let's look at ten reasons why this doesn't work. Things you probably haven't thought through very much before, if at all, in the past. That's why I think this class or this subject matter is good just, just to sit there and listen to think through these, these concepts. The example of Jacob and Esau, Romans 9, 9 through 16, proves that God does not do his choosing based on what he sees man will do. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Again, we've gone over this. Is, a lot of this is review for you, but just to think it through again. Two, it makes choosing or election meaningless. What is the sense of choosing if it's going to happen anyway? And again, we, we were prolific in looking at God's, you know, verses about God's choosing. But the foreknowledge view doesn't hold water for these reasons. So when you, say, when you hear someone say, oh, God just foreknew that I was going to be chosen, at least you know in your own mind, if you can't voice it and maybe challenge him with it, which I like to do sometimes, 
uh, at least you know, know that view really doesn't hold water. Number three, it contradicts the biblical teaching that man does not seek God. We looked at those verses, Romans 3, 10 through 12. No one seeks God. How, how much more clear can that be? To foreknow means to have a predetermined, intimate relationship with someone. It means to forelove. It means more than to have a mere knowledge of what will happen. All these verses talk about God foreknowing events that took place or that will take place. You have God gaining a knowledge, therefore he is not omniscience. What? Yeah. I mean, he didn't know that you were going to accept him, so then now he looks in the corridor of time. Oh, he's gaining a knowledge that you decided you're going to accept him, so then he elects you. No, is God, is God not omniscient? Is God um, not all-knowing? All he is. So again, that doesn't hold water for that reason. Six, why create unbelievers who are not going to believe? Isn't it cruel of him to allow that to happen? I mean, that's what he's doing in election ultimately, but from the foreknowledge view, why would he create unbelievers? If he knew someone wasn't going to, why would he create someone that he wouldn't want to have go to heaven with him? It's a, too much of a contradiction there. Seven, it contradicts Romans 8, 28, 29, which declares that God is active in bringing about salvation, not merely being an observer. This view makes God a reactor instead of an initiator. God's decision is dependent on my decision. God can't act until I act. When I first learned about this, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. I hadn't thought about that before. Maybe some of you are thinking along the same lines. <clears throat> Number eight, it doesn't solve anything. The future is still fixed. That is, what has brought about open theism? God is not in control. He's looking ahead down the line, and he sees what's going to happen. He's, he's gaining a knowledge, and he's thinking, oh, no, now what am I going to do? You know, or, you know, with the bad events or with the, supposedly the good events that you decided to choose him, he can now choose you. It's like, no, there's too many inconsistencies with that, that concept based on what our scripture says. Number nine, it contradicts Ephesians 2.1, which says that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Is that what God sees when he looks? So, again, we talked about the depravity of man and that whole building block of election that man really is 100% dead in his sins. And if then, supposedly, that person ultimately chooses on his own God and then God elects him, again, that doesn't jive with what Scripture is saying, that he's dead and that God has to make him alive in order for him to receive Christ. Ten, this view is merely an escape to avoid accepting the biblical truth of election. I think that's pretty true. Have you uh, thought of these things before? Comments? Questions? It seems like the thing that troubles people about election is the idea that if election is true, then somehow God is forcing people to do something against their will or something they don't want to do, which is not true at all, because when God works in someone's life, he changes their desires, he changes their want-tos, so that they willingly come 
or if they don't want to, they don't come. But but they're not going against their own will. Well said, Norm. Yeah. Yeah, just perfect. Yeah, really well said. Um, I think this is the end of our handouts, but I'm going to keep moving ahead. We can move the uh, handouts up for next time. Romans 9:12. It was said to her, "The older will serve the younger." Just that is as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Salvation does come from God's sovereign choice. This whole chapter is about election, about God choosing. Example of Jacob and Esau, because God does not love all men equally. What is amazing is that he loves anyone at all from a perfect God who hates sin, and yet he loves us so much that he came to die for our sins. Makes me want to just weep inside, knowing that God loved us that much. Praise God. Deuteronomy 7, 7, 8. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, but because the Lord loved you. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to drag you down here or slow you down, but um, I think that Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 is a great connection back to that Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Because as you rightly pointed out earlier in your slides, foreknowledge is tied to this idea of foreloving. And you gave some really good examples. Um, that one was... Genesis 4:17, where the term in Hebrew is yavah, where mm-hmm. Cain knew his wife. And, of course, it's not that he had mental assent as to who she was, but he knew her intimately as a husband and wife do. And in the same way, when we see the foreknowledge, God has foreloved. He's had a relationship, in a sense, beforehand. He's chosen to love his elect. And on that basis... He's predestined. He has chosen their destination based on a relationship that he chose to have before you did anything. And, awesome. and that ties right into it, the Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It ties into the Jacob and Esau. Um, so I'm sorry. I just wanted to make that connection back to Romans eight twenty nine, and um, I, hope, I hope that makes sense. So thank you for doing this. Thank you, Eric. Perfect addition to what's, what's going on. Just really, really quickly, back at this slide, Jeremiah, let me just read, I printed out some of the verses here. Let me just read through some of those. Jeremiah 1, 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It means to forelove. It means more than to have mere knowledge of what will happen. I, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Eric already mentioned Genesis 4:17, uh, Matthew 1:25, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. God, these things were all foreknown, all pre- planned beforehand. Amos 3:2, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. <laughs> That's a little surprised. But then it says, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Wow. Drink it in. Take in God's love. Take in his, uh, his word to your, to your heart. Isaiah 49.1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. For the body of my mother, he named me. From the body of my mother, he named me. He named me. Exodus thirty-three seventeen. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. I think of several songs in my head going 
about knowing God knowing us by name. Matthew 7.33 And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. So this is the opposite side of the coin, but nonetheless he knew. He, this is all predetermined. John 10, 14, 15. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Acts 2, 23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. We'll talk more about that verse in context of God's wills, his two wills in the, in the coming sessions. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So is it all chosen? Predetermined? Absolutely. <clears throat> There's another one okay. that could be on that list as well. And those are all very good. It's in Romans 11 and verse 2. Romans 11 and verse 2. About Israel. Okay? God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Right now, this one, I think, is very important because it is about Israel as a nation. And you can't just say God looked down the corridors of time and saw that some, you know, all of a sudden Abraham's thinking, you know, I think I'd like to have a lot of nations come for me. <laughs> and would that be cool? Yeah, yeah. And if you read the whole story, anybody that knows the Old Testament, you'd have to see the hand of God in the fact that there became a nation of Israel. But here it says God foreknew Israel, so he could not reject Israel. And it has to mean to set his love on in advance. Oh. It can't just mean having pre prescience or knowledge in, ahead of time. And another thing for those of you who are philosophers or maybe read books from guys that are or ladies that are, the problem with the Arminian foreknowledge view is it involves backwards causation. And backwards causation is irrational. And as being irrational is meaningless. In other words, you have the um, effect existing before the cause. Oh, so, so if man's decision is the cause of God's foreknowledge, then the effect becomes God's foreknowledge, but it existed before the cause, man's choice. So that's totally irrational. Now, just to show you how much time I wasted in seminary, <laughs> I don't know if it's a waste. I read book after book on this because I was yeah. debating some really brilliant people on yeah. these topics. The way uh, there's a way to escape it through this thing called middle knowledge, which some of you might run across this William Lane Craig. So I read his book, and you know William Lane Craig's book on mil middle knowledge is better than Arminianism. But here's the problem with. With it, and I love this brother, by the way. Don't get me wrong. It's all philosophy. Yeah, there's no biblical data. So, what middle knowledge? If you if you're interested, in here, is it okay to just throw this out yeah, here? Go ahead. Okay, it's, it's fascinating. Okay, the, here's the, here's what middle knowledge is in a nutshell. It's like you had the ultimate, biggest, most massive possible computer beyond anything. You can imagine, and that's God in eternity. And God runs every possibility that could ever be 
in every possible scenario that could ever be and just boom, runs it through this computer, only it's God's mind. If I make these if I make this universe, then this would be the result. If I make this universe, then this would be the result. If I make this universe, then it, and then down to every decision of every creature that ever could be in every possible world and every possible universe. Okay. And then the end, you end up with the one that we're in, which, according to William Lane Craig, would be the one that would maximize the number of people that actually become saved. And so he says our free will choices are the ground of God's knowledge, but not the cause of it. So I sat there, ground, cause, ground. (laughs) And after just about having a headache, I thought, I think I'll just go with the Bible. <laughs> so there's a nutshell of the middle knowledge. Could you go, before you quit, could you go back and review what you started with and leave us with that, that thought? Uh, the the okay. passage that you... Yeah, the passage that I was that talking you, about. That you started with? If you want to look at Romans 11, 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. I haven't even found a an Arminian that would say in that passage it means God just knew that some nation would show up. Because it would be such a crass ignoring of so much scripture. So God must have loved Israel before Israel was Israel. Read, read the passage one more time. Romans eleven two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know Amen. what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. He's talking about Israel. Amen. Thank you for sharing, Bob. I really appreciate it. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 10, 14, 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. Oh, Oh, praise the Lord for verses like this where it's it's so clear. The Holy Spirit just speaking to our hearts. I know he is to mine, just through the word. It's God's sovereignty and not man's free will that determines individual salvation. What shall we say then? There is no injustice. With God is there, may it never be. It's like these are shouting. These are like, did everybody hear that? Did everybody understand? There is no injustice. With God is there, may it never be. Don't even think that God is not just in any of his decisions and actions. Romans 9.15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. If God declares something to be just, then it is. End of story. Justice isn't higher than God. God cannot look to another source for further, better, more accurate, higher authority. He is the end of justice. I'm going to repeat that verse, Romans 9.15. I, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This says the message to me loud and clear. God chooses. He's the one that has mercy or decides to not have mercy. You got a question, please? Um, Steve, I'm just kind of curious. When praying for, for relatives or, you know, family members that are lost, praying for their salvation, knowing that it's it's sovereignly chosen by God, and I totally believe that, but 
I'm just wondering how does, and I know prayer is one of our means of grace that we're, we're going through, but it's, I'm just a little bit, I guess I'm not confused, but I'm just uh, wondering how does um, prayer or what type of, how should we be praying for that type of situation? If, we, if God is, God we is can't change his mind on that. We touched on this uh, last time a little bit, but I'm sure we can do it again, uh, that God uses us as the means for proclaiming his word. So we are the tools that God uses to declare the truth. And so when praying for someone who is not a believer, it is our calling by God to, to pray and to share the gospel with the unbelievers and leave the rest up to him. Uh, it's a hard one to, to justify in the fact that God does all the choosing and yet he wants us to pray. And yet he's, he wants us to share the truth of that. Bob can hardly stand it. <laughs> well, I, I pointed out to Go ahead. Deanna's scripture there. Okay. Uh, the most amazing one, because we've been in Romans 9, 10, and 11 in your yep. class. Yep. Well, the one that uh, we can just have to get our mind around is Paul, the apostle in Romans 10, said that his prayer for his brethren, the Jews, was for their salvation. And he was passionate about it. Okay, and then he, but that's right after the whole chapter saying, well, only some are chosen. But exactly. it didn't hinder his prayers. And since we don't know who the elect are, we pray fervently because we don't know. That's a really good point. We don't know who the elect are. And so then we need to continue to pray until their dying day. If that's the way God leads you, if they're, their fruits uh, display something else that we know that, well, we can't know 100%, but probably that their fruits are displaying that they're not chosen. That's another issue between you and God if you want to continue to pray for that person. But, uh, yeah, that's a perfect, perfect uh, reason we don't know who the elect are. I forget, Eric, if you remember, there's an evangelist that used to say, they, you know, it's like those were her who were elect had a big red X on their back and all we were doing is tearing off the back of their shirt to see if the red X was there by praying for them, giving them the gospel and saying, yep, there's a red X, he's, he's electing. Some, some uh, long ago evangelist, I can't think of his name right now. Oh, that's a neat story. Yeah, I, who was it? Spurgeon. Was it Spurgeon? Oh, Spurgeon? Okay, thanks, thanks. I was wondering if anybody here has heard R.C. Sproul's story. He was in a seminary class, and that same question came up. Why should they pray for anyone if God has, in fact, chosen them before the foundation of right. the world? And nobody wanted to answer. It was really a tough professor, apparently, and R.C. Sproul, brand new in his faith, and he sheepishly, nobody else would, so he sheepishly puts his hand in the air, and he says, well, perhaps because God commands us to. And the professor had a heyday with it. He said, oh, that's right, Mr. Sproul. Why would you do something merely because the creator of all things, the one who spoke in the universe, leapt into existence, commanded you to do something, you know? So, he, you know, of course, he played it up. But the point was is that God commands us to do that. So, um, but it, it ties in with everything else that you guys are saying. So I, I always like R.C. Sproul's story there. Anybody else? Let's end with this for tonight, Romans 9.16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Therefore, if anyone is going to be saved, it will have to be by God's choice, not man's. You see why I started out with the, the will and the free will and the, and the foreknowledge view and the trouble with the free will passages because it just doesn't fit with the way the scriptures talk about God does the choosing thanks for coming along on this vision this tour of the scriptures Father thank you again that you've made your word so alive to us tonight uh, pray for so many of our 
uh, unsaved friends or those, thing, those that believe they're chosen by free will and Lord, maybe they are. Maybe they're saved by, by election and they don't, they don't know it. They just don't understand it. Thank you for the understanding that you give us through your word and through thinking about it, through talking about it. Lord, I pray that you'd indelibly write these truths on our hearts so that we'll become more like you and get to know your character more and so that once again, Father, you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thank you.